This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Kier. This podcast is a venue for me to explore my curiosities through combos with leading thinkers and builders. My guest today is James Pierce. James is a writer and executive coach and claims to have found enlightenment. This combo is different from every conversation I've had previously in that we're more or less discussing and dancing around a singular thing. Call it enlightenment, the capital T truth, abiding non-dual awareness, nirvana, pick your favorite terminology. But inevitably, this means that there's a lot of similarities and overlap in my line of questioning. Thankfully, James does an excellent job of providing different examples and perspectives as answers. Now let's get to it. Please enjoy. I got into the whole, I guess, enlightenment thing probably four or five years ago, somewhere somewhere around there. I actually initially got into it because I heard Naval Ravikant on a podcast and he was talking about it's kind of some Eastern wisdom, things I'd never heard before. And it struck me as really interesting. So I went you know, down the rabbit hole, read a bunch of books, did a lot of introspection and self-inquiry and tried meditation and all these sorts of things. And then kind of, you know, got to the end of the road with that, so to speak. And now I write and I enjoy doing podcasts like this, kind of stuff like that to fill the time. That's kind of it, honestly. What was it about that uh, episode with Naval? And I imagine the journey actually started a little bit before that because it must have mirrored something you were already seeing in yourself. Uh, what was it that like sparked your pursuit of truth? I don't remember any one particular thing from that podcast that really hit me, but he just, he said some things that sounded very wise. They were very insightful and they weren't like anything else I'd heard before. You know, cause I've been exposed to like stoic philosophy. For example, I'd read Marcus Aurelius at the time and more Western philosophical ideas, but I hadn't really been exposed to the Eastern side of philosophy and talk of enlightenment and a peaceful mind, those sorts of things. So your your journey uh, to, to truth was on the order of four or five years, it sounds like, maybe a, a couple years less, uh, taking it seriously. In your experience, is truth realization a binary event, or is it a, a gradual journey instead of realizations? I definitely had a very specific moment where I, I mean, just speaking from the context of enlightenment, where I, I had a very felt experience of no self at a definitive point. And, and that happened probably two years ago now. And then there's been a gradual kind of growing into that, to use that phrase. Um, I, I've kind of integrated that, I guess you could say, into my life. So it's, it's definitely something you get used to. I don't know if you've read Judd McKenna. He talks about that a lot. Of course. He, if I remember correctly, said it's basically a a two-year journey, assuming you're serious once you take the first step, as he calls it, to get from zero to enlightened. And then after that, there's <laughs> there's a long adjustment period, which I've found to be true. So I'm not I'm not gonna ask you to attempt to explain what that state is like, because I think it's futile. I think uh, the Buddha said, don't mistake uh, somebody's finger when they're pointing at the moon. Um, but the best we can do with language is kind of hinting at it. Is there is there a metaphor or an analogy that best describes that state? There was someone, and I can't remember who, I think I may have referenced it in one of my blog posts, but he said that enlightened consciousness is exactly the same as ordinary consciousness, except two inches off the ground. And that 
is the best expression I've ever heard that captures it. It's beautiful. Speaking of language, I think, and, and you mentioned Jed McKenna, uh, he has a great quote that's something to the effect of uh, caterpillars can't talk about the matters of the butterfly. Um, so this, we have to look through this entire conversation through that lens of mine. Um, but at least I would imagine language is a big barrier to, to truth realization. Language is effective, effectively just communication through concepts and generalizations. How much is language at fault for our inability to arrive at truth? It's not the fault of language. It's the fault of the way we use the language, right? It's like if you use a hammer and you're not swinging it correctly or you're not even hitting something with it, like how much use are you going to get out of the hammer? So you have to use the tool in the way that's appropriate for the tool. And when it comes to words, the appropriate use of words is to point at something beyond themselves. So if you take a word like computer, the word itself is just pointing to the physical object. So it's like a, it's like a map to reality and you just have to not mistake the map for reality. On the, on the matter of concepts and generalizations and constructs, uh, time I've found the concept of time has been a big barrier in my own journey towards truth. Uh, it seems that a lot of my anxiety and stress comes from a bad relationship with time in the sense that I'm always looking on the past nostalgic or regretting it. I'm always looking at the future, fantasizing or fearing about something and sacrifice the present in the process. How should we think about time and our relationship to it? And how does it prevent truth realization? I really don't think about time all that much. There's a certain practical use for it. Like if you're making plans, like we, I mean, we set up this podcast, right? We're like, hey, we're right. going to talk on Friday at 3 p.m. So there's obviously a usefulness to it. But you have to be able to use it when it's useful and put it down when it's not. And when it comes to things like anxiety and worrying about the future or being nostalgic at the past, it really doesn't serve a, a useful purpose. All that does is take you out of the moment. It stops you from enjoying things. And learning to break that habit is a, a big step on the path towards enlightenment. Is someone who is enlightened perpetually aware of their ego but keeps it at bay? Or is it gone entirely? Enlightenment is the realization that there is no ego. So it, it's not that you keep it at bay. It's not that it goes away. It's you realize it wasn't there in the first place. It was an illusion. What would you say is the greatest misconception about truth realization or enlightenment? It's hard to pinpoint any single misconception and say this is the biggest one. But I can say from my own personal experience, I thought it would look very different. You hear a lot of talk about you know, how amazing and blissful it is. And, and I can see how people would describe it that way. That's not totally off base. You also hear people talk about the amazing qualities of a quiet mind and how beautiful it is. And you kind of get this impression that they're talking about something other than what you're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. And they're not. Their life 
through their lives looks exactly the same after enlightenment as it does before enlightenment. But they see it differently. Can you expand on that? So I'd, actually, I think Buddha even said something along that line. He said, samsara is nirvana. Nirvana is samsara. Nirvana obviously means enlightenment. Samsara means the non-enlightened experience of life. People talk about, for example, the realization that you are not your mind. And they talk about watching your thoughts as though you're separate from them, all, all these sorts of things. And I know for me, I developed this idea that when I became enlightened, I would somehow have a new vantage point from which I would watch my mind. Right. So it wouldn't sound like it's me talking. It would sound like some faraway voice that has nothing to do with me. And no, that's not how it works. Your mind sounds exactly the same as it did before you were enlightened. Just like when you listen to music, the sound of the music hitting your ear is exactly the same as it was before you're enlightened. The difference is in the understanding. It's not in the experience. When you realize that the ego is a, is a falsehood, what's left? What remains? What is James Pierce? That's, that's the tricky thing, you know? There, there's, there's no single thing I could point to and say, this is me. There's still a body, there's still a mind, there's still the experience of these things as a, a single whole unit. But nowhere in there can I point to something and say, this is what I am. A lot of uh, supposed enlightened people and, and gurus and spiritual teachers, um, Kapil Gupta com comes to mind, talks extensively about the idea of sincerity. What does it mean to be sincere in your pursuit of truth? It means that you're actually after the truth. A lot of people that claim to be seeking enlightenment aren't really seeking enlightenment. They're seeking maybe the status they think enlightenment will bring them, or they're seeking the happiness they think enlightenment will bring them. There are all these ulterior motives that they bring into the search for enlightenment. And that's part of the reason why they never get there. It's because they're not really looking for it. In my own experience, um, I felt this great tension between the idea of effort and surrendering, um, I'm probably going to quote Jed McKenna many times during this. Uh, he has a great quote. That yeah, says, that's, that's great. Right. He, he says, uh, release the tiller. But uh, sorry, I'm, I'm reflecting on that's some of okay. these things as I'm saying them. This is uh, part of the beauty of having this conversation is a very deep personal moment for me as well. So it's not yeah. just the, the task of interviewing. It's self-reflective. Um, the battle of effort and surrender. If you if you look at them from a absolutist standpoint, uh, absolute effort is is frantic. It's constantly ser searching for something. It's busy. Absolute surrender is just I sit here and eventually die and decompose. Uh, what does it mean to surrender in the context of truth realization? Because it it can't mean just do absolutely nothing. There's still something happening. Yeah, surrender is a state of mind, it's not a state of inaction. So surrendering really means you've let go internally of the desire for results. You've, you've gotten rid of that mental frame where you're trying to control everything. And you're just, you've decided that for whatever reason, you're gonna let things be. And the key to a genuine surrender is, and this goes back to sincerity, right? It, it can't be 
surrendering because you're trying to get something, right? It can't be like the guy in the war that surrenders and then the moment the other guy's back is turned, he decides to start fighting again. That's not that's not how it works. That's not a true surrender. So, for example, you talk about happiness and you say that happiness comes when you've surrendered the desire to be happy. If you are surrendering or trying to go through the motions of surrendering in order to be happy, you'll never get it because it's not a true surrender. There's a, there's a paradox within there, uh, which is you're not surrendering to attain anything. You're surrendering just to, to reach truth. But even the way I'm saying it, it sounds like it's a pursuit and it's not. Yeah. It, surrender isn't walking towards something. It's walking away from something. What role does your intuition or gut play in this? And, and does it even play a role when your ego is kind of shrouding it or affecting it? I think intuition for nearly everyone is what sets them down the path in the first place. I know that's what it was for me. There was this kind of magnetic draw I had towards all the people that talked about enlightenment. And it wasn't a product of logic, it was a product of intuition. Like, I think there's something more there. I, I get this feeling that there's there's something very deep that they're talking about and that I can experience for myself. There's this tricky interplay between ego and intuition where the more control your ego has, the more you have these flawed patterns of thinking the more that's going to interfere with your intuition. And you can see this, right? Like you get a a feeling about someone and if you try to trace back where that feeling comes from, either you can't find where it comes from, which generally means it's a pure intuition, or you can find that there's some factor, some latent desire or some opinion you have about people that share similar characteristics that's influencing the way you feel about it. And that's a prime example of when the mind kind of puts its finger on the scale of your intuition. Mm. So intuition is almost origin-less, just yeah. kind of, it's emergent. Yeah, whereas, it's inexplicable. Right. Obviously, I, I've read several of the books in, the, in this genre, if you will. I feel like I can, uh, to some degree, s speak enlightenment, but I'm admittedly no closer to it than I was years ago. I'm, I'm not enlightened. I'm able to, to parrot or regurgitate these, ex these responses. And, and I also know that this conditioning exists, right? The ego exists. What am I missing? What, what's the gap here that I have to bridge? No amount of intellectual understanding can bring about enlightenment. It has to be a direct experience. And that's why, you know, I, I love Ramana Maharshi's advice, which was, ask yourself, who am I? I think that's incredibly valuable. And I think it's made even more valuable when you contrast that with what Nisargadatta said, which was to focus on, he called it the I am, basically the sense that you exist, the sense that there is some me in there somewhere. Because you, you have to look at this thing directly, not just analytically with your mind, but with your whole being. You have to fo focus as much of your attention on it as you can in order to see what the actual felt experience is like of being alive. 
And I think that's where the, I imagine the sincerity comes in. And sincerity is not something you can fake or manufacture. So are you kind of at the, are you at the whim of, I don't know if it's the universe, your intuition, whoever I am absent my ego or the belief in my ego. Uh, if you don't have that sincerity, do you just have to wait for it to come about? It's a good, it's a good question. The way to find sincerity is to look for it, which I know is a, much of a non-answer, but I think of it this way. No one that wants enlightenment genuinely will fail to get there, and anyone that doesn't want it will fail to get there. So become, becoming sincere about enlightenment is a trap, but seeing if you are sincere about enlightenment is where it's at. Because if you're not sincere about it, that means you don't want it. And there's nothing wrong with not wanting it. The problem is when when you want to want it, right? Because then there's some some sort of acquisitiveness in there that's leading you down that trap. Do you think you're innately sincere? Uh, you're, you're predestined to to become enlightened or not? Or do you think there can be a transformation through which you become sincere? I think... Both are possible. For me, it's very—it's so hard to say, looking back, whether I was sincere the whole time. I definitely became more sincere as the search went on. But it, it's very difficult to say how sincere I was from day one. I can say definitively I am not, not sincere. Uh, and I know that and I... Uh, I don't know if there's consolation or comfort in being able to say that. Um, I, I don't kind of trick myself into thinking it. And and one of the big parts, one of the big reasons for that is I have this anxiety or fear about what happens uh, when you are truly unattached from anything. And I, I have a wife, I have a child. Um, how do you now look at the people around you that you previously would have said and Maybe you stu still do love them in the conventional sense, but how does your relationship to other people change once you have reached the state? You don't grasp at things like you used to. A lot of people hang on to bad relationships purely because they're attached or they're afraid of being alone. Or I mean, there are so many reasons. And when you get over that attachment, you are you have a much easier time just taking things as they come right so if you love someone and you see them in a bad situation like you you feel sad obviously but after the fact you don't feel sad because it's no longer happening but if you're attached and that weighs very heavily on your mind you're, you're going to be thinking about those things long after they're done so overcoming attachment isn't really about how it would be if you were not attached. It's about seeing the problems of being attached. You know, it, it's like when you burn your hand on a stove. I love this example. I probably use it way too often, but it's very poignant. If it works, it works. Yeah, if, if you burn your hand on a stove, no one needs to tell you, oh, you really shouldn't do that because you feel the pain directly. You see the, cause, the causality there. So you understand not to do it if you don't want to feel pain and no one wants to feel pain. So... People don't burn their hand on stoves 
multiple times. It happens once and then you learn. The problem is with something like attachment, it's very difficult to see precisely. So when people get burned in relationships, they don't understand the causality. They attribute it to external things. When really, yeah, there was an external conflict, but the reason you're so upset about it is because of your internal state. So I, I think the main reason people don't overcome attachment is just that they don't see that. And most of them don't look for it, which is why they don't see it. Mm -hmm. What do we as humans, and I imagine there is a root common answer to this, what do we as humans fear most? Jed McKenna, I think, said that all fear is fear, fear of no self. And I've... I've been unable to find a a counterexample to that, so I'd have to, I'd have to yeah. side with him on that one. That that checks out if the the end of the road is to realize that there is no self, yeah. and that it, that's the ego's uh, kind of uh, self preservation mechanism. Once you once you realize truth, how do you continue to to live, frankly, like participate in society, be a uh, to go back to Jed, he has this example of like, um, when you pre enlightenment, you are a character in a soap opera, uh, and post enlightenment, you're kind of watching the soap opera. Um, you, you don or put back on this like suit, this character each time you kind of reemerge into reality and please check me on any of that. Um, why, why do you continue to participate in society at all? What's the point? For fun. <laughs> you know, if, if you're watching a boring soap opera, that's that's not as entertaining as a, a soap opera with a good plot, right? So do things for the plot. I, I can understand how a lot of people, when they become enlightened, would retreat maybe to the Himalayas or to, to nature somewhere and live outside of society. But frankly, I enjoy a lot of the, the benefits of living in society. I mean, I can pull out my phone tap in a couple places, get food delivered directly to my door, or set a date with a beautiful girl that I've never met, which to me is pretty amazing. And it, it, why would I give that up? You know, I, it'd have to be a compelling reason, and I haven't found one. I have to know what dates are like in, uh, in this state. <laughs> you know, they're pretty much normal dates. I don't, <laughs> it's not like I show up and, and say, hi, I don't exist. Nice to meet you. Um, no, I just, it's it's kind of like undercover Buddha, right? <laughs> right. Oh. Do you have aspirations isn't the right word. Plan isn't the right word. But do you foresee yourself being in a relationship, having a family? Yeah, sure. And... I don't see why not. Okay. Fascinating. Um, there is a, there's a misconception on my end about that detached state we were already talking about and the implications of that on being able to, you know, maintain relationships with people. Um, to get kind of straight to almost the, the question, and we, I asked you earlier, uh, I'm kind of doing a 180 on, my, on a comment I made earlier, which was that you can't describe the truth directly, and that's why I asked you for a metaphor. But I'm sure you've been asked this question enough times to come up with an answer. What is the truth? What is the capital T truth? There, there is a single truth that you realize that, that leads you to enlightenment, and it's that there is no self. The person you think of as you 
is a figment of your imagination, which obviously is a paradoxical way of saying it, because how could you be a figment of your imagination? But that's, that's the truth. The mind imagines that there is someone inside there somewhere that has all these experiences, has these desires, you know, everything that happens in life happens to that person. And enlightenment is seeing through that and realizing, no, there is, there is no one inside my head behind the steering wheel. It's just, it's just there. There's, there's a body, there's a mind, there's a world, but there's no one behind all of that. I've heard from several gurus, spiritual teachers that the uh, kind of prioritization of practices of prescriptions, as Kapil Gupta calls it, um, are a fool's errand. What role in your experience have these kinds of practices, journaling, meditation played? And should you think about them as a distraction or they can be beneficial? It just really depends on the sincerity. Sincerity is absolutely the primary factor. I, I think that if you had a very sincere person, regardless of what you told them to do, they would find their way eventually. So really it's just a question of how practical the instructions are, if there are any practical instructions or advice. And the most practical thing I've found is just direct inquiry. Because the problem is that there's, there's this illusion of self. That's what stands in the way of enlightenment. And if you want to tackle the illusion, start looking into it. You don't, you don't have to go into this roundabout way where you meditate on a regular basis and do your pranayama and all your yoga poses. If you want to get rid of the illusion, look into the illusion. You're a, a coach. I'm not sure if you'd call yourself a coach, uh, a spiritual teacher. That's as, that's as good a word as any. Co coach is the preferred word? Yeah, I, I don't really you know, make distinctions between one word or okay. another. It's, it's all about communicating. Why do you... Why do you coach? Let's start there. I mean, the, the short answer is that I enjoy it. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Um, I just enjoy talking about this stuff. I enjoy having interesting conversations with people. And then the, the more practical answer is you have to do something if you don't want to be homeless, right? So you got you to make a living somehow. Might as well do it doing something I enjoy. Right. On the note of sincerity... Do you believe you can actually help people through words, through coaching, if they're insincere? Or is that they're, is, should I not look at it as binary as like, if they reach enlightenment, I helped them. And if they didn't, I didn't. Is there incremental value in just uh, being able to see that your condition, see through some of your thought process processes? I think there's a lot of value in those, those incremental improvements. It's all a question of where you want to go, where you want to end up. So if enlightenment is your end goal, then yeah, you're not going to care as much about the incremental improvements. Like, oh, I feel much happier on a day-to-day -day basis than I did before, but I'm still not enlightened, therefore it doesn't matter that much. But to someone that's not seriously seeking enlightenment, yeah, there is a lot of value in those improvements. And you, you absolutely can help someone to get to those because they're... A product of understanding and if you help someone see things that they didn't see before 
then there's naturally going to be an improvement there. As far as someone that is insincere, the greatest thing you can help them see is that they're not sincere. And mm -hmm. realizing that alone, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, tends to make them more sincere. Do you believe that enlightenment is tenable for the average person or for humanity at scale? I think um, I this is guesswork, but I imagine something on the order of tens of people globally are enlightened. It's certainly not millions. No. Uh, is, is this something that everyone can, that, that we should aspire kind of as humanity for everyone to move towards, or is that just not feasible? It's feasible. I think when you look at it on a practical level, it takes so much adjustment for a person once they get there to get back to a sort of normal way of living in the world that if it happened all at once, I think there would be a lot of calamity as a result. I think, <laughs> you know, if you, if you want to get there smoothly, it has to be gradual. You can't just snap your fingers and wake the whole world up. But yeah, it's, it's, it's possible. I don't think it's very likely, but, but it could work. I'd, yeah. I don't think it's likely. And good point. I hadn't thought about the, the knock-on effects of, of that happening uh, simultaneously. Um, what is the interplay between truth realization? And, and my guess is the answer is they are independent or uh, they do not. There, there's no causality here um, between truth realization and elite performance. What if, if a Olympic athlete or chess grandmaster is, uh, is enlightened, what, what compels them to practice, to be great, to be the best. There are still reasons for doing those things. I mean, per like personally, I play chess. I, I'm improving at chess and I enjoy doing that. It's very fun for me. The difference is that you're not motivated by ego anymore. You're motivated by a genuine enjoyment of what you're doing. And, you know, I can only speak from my own experience here, but I find it incredibly enjoyable to get better at things. I, I'm not, I've, and this is, this is, has nothing to do with enlightenment. I've always been this way. I've never been the type of person who can just sit down and play a game and learn nothing from it whatsoever and not improve from day to day playing the game. I, I was always the person who like, if, <laughs> you know, my family would sometimes play board games. There was this game, um, Settlers of Catan and, you know, my brother introduced it to the family. And so we all started playing it and. So what I do, I downloaded the version on my phone. It was like watching YouTube videos, learning best strategy and all things like this. And then the next time we played, I just smoked everyone like that. And that, that to me is far more fun than just playing and like, oh, I don't care if I'm good or not and any, any of that stuff. But the difference I would say, though, is I enjoy winning, not having won. And it may seem like a small thing, but it's a very big distinction. It's, it's like what... Krishna said in the Bhagavad Gita about acting and not reflecting on the fruit of the act. Mm -hmm. Have you found in your coaching that each student or client, uh, however you refer to them, consistently faces variations or symptoms of the same, of the same kind of root thing, or is there 
nuance here that requires you to approach each person in a unique way? There is nuance, but the problems are, are often very similar. I mean, they, like they all center around the mind, right? No, no problem someone comes to me with is totally orthogonal to the mind because otherwise they wouldn't come to me, right? Like someone's not, someone's not going to come to me and say, hey, I need help optimizing my sales funnel. And I'm going to go, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. Perfect. I'll help you. Like, no, people come to me with, with mental issues and I, that's what I work on. The reason that the coaching is valuable, because if the coaching wasn't valuable, I'd just you know, write the course and be done with it and wouldn't do the coaching because I, I don't enjoy just getting paid for providing no value. That's not something I like. The reason the coaching is valuable is because even though there are certain truths that apply to all these problems, people aren't always able to hear those or read those and understand how that fits into their unique situation. So a little bit of unraveling from someone who understands it is often very helpful. Based on what you've heard from me so far, and I'm, I'm attempting to get some free coaching out of this, so I'll be, <laughs> I'll be very brazen about that. Uh, based on what you've heard from me so far, and, and I imagine the journey here is a series of questions, uh, and there's a very long rabbit hole. What, what is the question that I should be asking myself at the point in my journey based on the questions I've asked you thus far? I like to be very pragmatic here, I think the most important question anyone could ask themselves at any time is, what do I want? And just clarifying that alone, like that, that tells you where to go. It tells you what direction you should be pointed in. That informs all of the follow-up questions that you're going to ask. Frankly, the main problem everyone has is, is that they don't know what they want and they're struggling to find it. And if they just had that little bit of clarity, their life would be a lot easier. I think you simultaneously answered the question that I always ask. All, all guests is the final question, which is, what should everyone be asking themselves? So uh, you, you killed two birds with one stone there. To, to poke at that a bit, and this may be me fixating on language again, but the idea of wanting uh, is something that feels inconsistent with truth, realization, and sincerity. So maybe you're just using it a, a different way, but what is a true or a valid isn't the right word? What, what is a true want? Yeah, there are a lot of desires that are superficial or surface level. And the best way to understand what you really want is by seeing through all of those. Oftentimes when your desire for something is genuine, you can't quite place the reason why you want it. And like for me, why I wanted enlightenment, I, I could never have given you an answer. There was just something about it that, that appealed to me. Whenever you're looking into your wants, if you find an answer, chances are it's not genuine. A, lo a lot of overcoming desire is just understanding the motivations behind what you want. Like, oh, I want to actually spend time with this person because I feel validated when I'm with them. And then when you completely internalize that, when you understand it on not just an intellectual level, but a, like a felt experiential level, that desire goes away. 
so really the way to, to get to the genuine desires is to understand all of the desires you have until <laughs> until either all of them go away or 99% of them go away and you're left with what's genuine. The, one of the tricky things to convey, and especially tricky to articulate, I've found, is what desire is like after enlightenment. Because it's gone, but it's still there in a sense, right? So like you, if you asked me, for example, why am I doing this podcast? I would say, because I want to. And then someone goes, oh, so you do have desires. So, well, yeah, sort of, you know, I have preferences. I, there are certain things I enjoy. There are certain things I don't enjoy. And I prefer to do things I enjoy. And that's, that's natural. Anyone is going to be like that. If you didn't have any preferences after enlightenment, how would you decide what you're going to do on a given day? If you go to a restaurant, how would you pick one, how would you pick one food over another if you have no preferences? Like when I go to a restaurant, I pick the food I enjoy. That's the same thing for, for what I do in life. This maybe ties back to the question I'd asked earlier about intuition or gut and kind of where that emanates from. It sounds like preferences fall in that same bucket where they come from this thing that is James Pierce absent of the, the ego, uh, but it's still uh impossible to define or pin down is that yeah you have to ask yourself is this a product of thinking or is this something that is natural to me mm. right like like if you're picking your food like you pick it because you enjoy the taste but i mean aside from like nutritional qualities and all of that stuff obviously just for simplicity's sake you know if you're choosing people that you spend time with are you choosing them because you just enjoy spending time with them that's a very natural thing or are you choosing them because you want things from them? There's, is there some sort of scheming going on? Like, oh, I'm trying to get this from that person and that from the other person over there. And you just run down this rabbit hole of wanting all these different things. Great. Well, we, we had scheduled an hour and a half. Uh, I had prepared a lot of questions. We've burned through them. And I think the trouble with this with this conversation, as opposed to a lot of the other ones I've had and will have on this podcast is... It boils down to one thing, the truth. And so we're just kind of dancing yeah, of around course. it indefinitely. So I feel like there's only so many times you can butt up against that. Um, but this has been a blast. You've given me a lot to think about. Uh, it was a joy to go back through and read. I had already read most of your essays, but was able to go back through and read them. Um, so I really appreciate your time and, and you doing yeah, this course. with me. And um, maybe if I get further in my journey, we can we can have you back on for a new set of questions. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. Well, thank you, James.